we enter into the next division. In this division, Yahweh brings lawsuits against his people. So he's actually going to bring up now specific lawsuits, court cases that he has against them and the evidence. Now, we've gotten a little taste of the prophets. Well, we've gotten a big taste with Amos and Hosea. And Amos really, really, really focused on the social injustice of Israel while also emphasizing the idolatry. But obviously the social injustice was a bigger bone for him. Now we come to Hosea, who talks about the social injustice, but the bigger bone for him is the idolatry. These are the two big sins that Israel has committed, and both of them are emphasizing different things. From this point on, all throughout the prophets, these two sins are going to be repeated over and over and over again. And God is going to give a lot of the same evidence. He's going to attack the kings. He's going to attack the priests. He's going to attack the false prophets. He's going to attack the way that they dealt with the people through cheating them court systems and, and moving boundary markers and cheating them and taxing them, all that kind of stuff. And it's going to feel very repetitive because it is. Remember the repetitions because they didn't listen. The repetitions because they weren't reading this. They were hearing it at different times. And the repetition is because we're thick-headed ding-dongs and we need to hear it over and over and over again. At the same time, he's going to repeat over and over again, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. I'm going to tear you apart. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to lay out your land. I'm going to tear down your walls. And he won't name the Assyrians by name specifically in Hosea and in Amos and in Micah. But when we get to Isaiah, he'll really start naming them by name. Right now, they're just the armies in the east or the north. But eventually, they'll be named. Now that we got an idea of this, I'm going to start skipping chapters and just kind of summarizing them um, because we will never get done with the prophets if I try to read every word. And hopefully you're reading this stuff on your own and that kind of stuff. So I'm going to start really kind of emphasizing now from this point on how these prophets are unique. We'll keep coming back to the social injustice and the idolatry and the judgment is coming because we don't want to forget about that. Um, but now I'm going to focus on the unique things that they're going to be talking about in those judgments, but also the promise of restoration, because that's really what God is ultimately pointing towards. So in this next section, there's lawsuits. And when chapter 6, verse 4, Yahweh begins by talking about the fact that they have no knowledge of him. Okay, They, they know his name. They can say some memory verses maybe. They can quote some stories about Abraham and Jacob. They know their history, but they don't really know Yahweh. They obviously don't know him if they're worshiping other idols. They obviously don't know him if they're not taking him seriously on the judgment about how he hates sin. They obviously don't know him when they don't believe him that he'll restore him. And so he condemns them for not really knowing him. And that is pretty much the greatest lack of their commitment and love to him. How can you be committed and in love with a God or a being that you don't really know? That you don't really know. And that's where their biggest problem was. After dealing with that, in chapter 6, he deals with her religious hypocrisy. Now he's going to take the idolatry and the social injustice, and he's going to bring it together, and he's going to say, look, you are going into these places, and you're oppressing the poor, and you're cheating them, and you're, you're gaining more and more money and power off of cheating the poor, oppressing your people, and violating justice in so many ways. And then at the same time, you're worshiping these pagan gods and these idols, which 
are involved, their worship of them is so immoral in itself, let alone that you're going after other gods. And then you go into the temple of Yahweh and you sacrifice to him and you think like, no big deal. No big deal. This is like somebody who's constantly like, who's married to like a really good person who's fighting like the sex slave trade industry and, and the people who are being oppressed and orphanages and all that kind of stuff and fighting for these causes. And you're married to them and you're off having affairs every single night practically. And then you're cheating people while you're doing this to make more money to pay for the affairs or prostitutions. And then you come home and fight these social justice causes with your spouse and act like everything's okay. And that's what God is saying. This is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. This is totally not cool. Not only have done that, but they're also making alliances with foreign nations. And he considers that as bad as well. And so Yahweh warned them that their joyful celebration and their life will not be good. The joy in their celebrations, the beauty in their life is not going to be good. He describes a mighty eagle from the north, and that's Assyria. And this mighty eagle will swoop down and destroy them. And when he does, their festivals will turn from celebrations to basically destruction and mourning and funeral songs. We've already seen that, and he's already mentioned that. In chapter 9, Yahweh basically says, he goes back through their history, and he says, look, I haven't always found you repulsive. (laughs) It's like, like, thanks for the compliment. I haven't always found you repulsive. The day that I called you and I chose you, and I chose Abraham and I drew him near to me, and the day that I delivered you from Egypt and I made a covenant with you and I brought you to the land, I loved you, I pursued you, I made a covenant with you, I wanted to make you into this great nation. But you... You went after the Baals, and you worshiped the other gods. In many cases, within months of receiving the law, within months of receiving redemption from Egypt, this is what makes me repulsed. This is what makes me abhor you and what you do. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and condemns the kings. He says, your kings are so evil and they're so pathetic that they're not leading you. There's no king to truly lead you. There's no king to protect you anymore. And even if you had a king, they wouldn't do anything about it. So that brings us to chapter 11. And this is where we'll kind of pick back up and emphasize things. But now he's going to go back. He's going to remember their past in Egypt in a good way. He's going to retell the story. It's like, remember when we were first dating? And all the joy and the memories that they came with that. So in chapter chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. When Israel was a young man, I loved him like a son. And I summoned my son out of Egypt. But the more I summoned them, the further they departed from me. They sacrificed to Baal idols, and they burned incense images. Yet, yet it was I who led Ephraim. I took them by the arm, but they did not acknowledge that I had healed them. I led them with the leather cords, with leather ropes. And I lifted the yoke from their necks and gently fed them. So if you think I'm harsh right now, remember... When we first met, remember how I loved you, how I saved you, how I lifted the yoke of Egypt off of your back, and I lifted the burden off of you, and I loved you, and I pursued you. And in verse 5, it says, They will return to Egypt. Assyria will rule over them, because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will destroy the bars of their city gates, and it will devour them in the fortresses. My people are obsessed with turning away from me. They called to Baal. But he will never exalt them. 
Baal can't do for you what I did for you. He cannot make you into a great nation like I did. He cannot save you like I did. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I treat you like Adama? How can I make you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. All my tender compassions are aroused. I cannot carry out my fierce anger because I cannot totally destroy Ephraim because I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not, I will not come in wrath. Now this is where you see the heart of God. In the first four verses, first seven verses, you see God saying, I'm going to punish you. Okay, This is the angry father who just caught their kids doing a horrible, evil thing. And they're like burning with rage and anger like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just did this, this immoral thing. And they're like, they want to punish you. I want to ground you for life. I want to kick you out of the house. All that kind of stuff. Everything that you're just like, I can't believe this happened. And the anger, you just want to destroy them. Now, hopefully you've never had that of wanting to destroy your kids. But then you kind of calm down a little bit. And you realize that these are my kids and I love them. And, and no matter how much of a stinker they are, they're still cute. I still love them. He then says, but how can I punish you this severely? I want to completely destroy you. Like back with Moses. I'll kill them all and start all over with you, Moses. But I love you. And I can't do that. The infamous, this will hurt me more than it will hurt you as you spank them. And I am not going to do that. But Nosey says, I am not a human that changes my mind. Now remember, God does change his mind to a certain extent. That, and what we've already talked about back in uh, Exodus and other places, where if, if, you, if God is going to punish you and you repent, he will change his mind and he will forgive you. But that's not a changing his mind like willy-nilly emotionally. Like, oh, you just made a really good argument. I've never thought about that. I'm going to change my mind now. Or like he's, you persuade him to do something he's never thought of. This is between punishing you because of your sin and showing you mercy and grace and forgiving you because of your repentance. And those do not violate his character. And he's not changing his mind like we do emotionally. We can be persuaded emotionally. We can be led into another decision emotionally. We can be presented with new facts that we've never thought about. But Yahweh is not saying, he says, I'm not a man who emotionally, willy-nilly changes my mind. I punish when you sin because I've sworn that I will do that in my covenant and that's my character. And I will forgive you and restore you when you repent because I've promised that in my covenant and that's my character. These are two choices that have been clearly laid out. Clearly laid out. And what God is saying is, I promise that I will not completely destroy you in my covenant. I've promised I would restore you one day. And so as angry as I am, as much as I want to just give you the, 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 the whole book, I'm not, because I love you. And so what God has made very clear here is that he will not completely destroy or wipe out Israel because of two things. First, his character of love and mercy will not allow it. Nobody else will stop him. He won't allow it for his own character. And two, his promises won't allow it. His character is the kind of God who will not just completely destroy you as a people group or a covenant group or a human race. And his promises that I will never destroy you will not allow that. And so he's true to his character and he's true to his promises. And we see this. So Yahweh is heartbroken knowing that he had to punish them with Assyria, but they constantly turned away. So there's a wordplay going on here. Where Israel refused to repent, shub, return, 
so they would return to bondage, shub. So he says, because you have refused to shub, return back to me, I will shub, return you back to Egypt of your bondage. Yahweh mourned Ephraim's coming judgment and could not bear to overturn Hafak, them in his judgment, as he's had to overturn Hafak, the city of Adam. So he says, I will return you to Egypt because you haven't returned to me. But I can't bear to overturn you in judgment like I've overturned these other cities who never repented. And I didn't make covenants with them. So he's using these puns here. And then when Yahweh saw his child being punished, his heart was hafak, turned to compassion. And he could not punish Ephraim with blind rage. He would stop short of annihilating them because unlike humans, he can control his emotions. And we know many, many, many cases that make the news. Maybe you even as a parent kind of scared yourself a little bit that you got so angry and at your kids that you lost control and just went down on them. And, we, and, and though that's wrong, we empathize. We sympathize with that. We know what it's like to be human. We know what it's like to be angry like that. And we know the risk of losing control because of our emotions are so powerful. And our emotions can overcome control and logic at times. And so we know that's wrong. We may be horrified when we see it, but we can at least hopefully have understanding of how people do that because we're human. But what God is saying is that he wants to punish them and completely destroy them because when he sees their sin, it angers him so much. But he does not lose control. And he does not let his emotions override his self-control and his logic. And he will stop short of completely annihilating them. And he will honor his promises to them because as he turns them over into judgment, he can't bear to completely overturn them into destruction because his heart is now being turned to compassion as he watches the people that he loves be punished and suffer. And this is what makes God so amazing. The other gods and the other humans in the world, most of them don't care about you. And when they punish you, they punish for vengeance and they punish for their pound of flesh and more. And they don't even think twice about it afterwards when they walk away. But Yahweh is punishing for sin. And he will not abandon you completely to the punishment because he is overwhelmed by compassion as he punishes you. Because he's punishing because he loves. So this is the compassion of God. So Yahweh says, or Hosea says, He will roar like a lion. Yahweh will. And they will follow Yahweh. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. And they will return in fear and trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. And I will settle them in their homes, declares Yahweh. So I will stop short of Egypt and Assyria wiping you out completely. And then I will roar like a lion. A lion that is not roaring and tearing you apart anymore. A lion that is roaring, calling you back out of the punishment, back out of the time out. And you'll come from the west, which is Egypt, and you'll be returned back to your home. And there you will be rebuilt and restored as God will do new things with you. And those new things we'll talk about later when we get deeper into the prophets. Yahweh now brings another lawsuit against them. And this lawsuit is not just for the religious hypocrisy, which we've already talked about in the first lawsuit. Now, in this next division, he's going to go back through Israel's history. But rather than talking about the day that they met and that he saved them and they've turned away and that kind of stuff, now he's going to highlight three major events 
First Jacob, then the wilderness, and then their desire for a king. So he's going to go through Jacob, and he's going to talk about from the very beginning that you are truly becoming a people. I chose Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. And out of Jacob, he had 12 sons. Okay? And they began to become the nation, an actual people group. Abraham by himself, Isaac by himself is not really a nation, a people group. But Jacob having these sons becomes a people group. And there were 70 of them total when they went into Egypt. And what God does now is he goes back through Jacob and he goes through all the deceit of Jacob, how he's a trickster and how he deceived people and how he was only thinking about himself. And what he basically does, he goes through his history and says, for the very beginning, the very moment that you were becoming one person, turning from one person to many people, your father was a deceiver. Your father was a trickster. This is your DNA. This is in your blood. And then he goes to Egypt and how he delivered them out of Egypt and how he brought them into the wilderness and how within 40 days, actually three weeks after they got out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai. And then within the 40 days of being at Mount Sinai, they were immediately worshiping a golden calf. And then within the couple of years after that, they were constantly going after idols. And they were going after Baal within a year of that. And he's talking about their sin and their rebellion. And then he talks about when they came into the land. And then when I brought you into the land and you got in the promised land, you wanted a king like all the other nations. You wanted a king to fight your wars instead of Yahweh. You wanted a king to lead you instead of Yahweh. You wanted somebody who was more like the pagans than like the righteous God. And basically the point he's making is, this is who you've always been. Jacob, you've always been a sinner. You've never been loyal, and you're incapable of being loyal. And then if you look at the whole point that the entire Bible's making, from the beginning of Genesis all the way up to the Gospels, this is the whole point the Bible's making, that Israel is a type or an example, an illustration of what all humans are like. We're always unfaithful. We're never able to be committed. We can never obey God rightly. And this is why when Paul says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every good Jew would immediately remember the entire history of Israel. And they would realize that that was what everybody is like. What he's saying is some things have never changed. Some, I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. In fact, when Moses was sending you off to the promised land, he said... You are evil, wicked people, and you will constantly turn away from God. And not if you go into exile, when you go into exile. And this is the point that God is making, is that human nature, specifically illustrated through the nation of Israel over thousands of years, will always go astray in their hearts. Why, why does he spend so much time calling himself the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, goes back and forth, he identifies with Jacob more than anyone else, and yet Jacob is this, like, really kind of sleazy guy. Jacob is his name, and then he got changed to Israel, which you already know. Remember, Jacob had the idea of deceiving and tripping up, so that was his nature. But then when Jacob was wrestling with the angel, the angel said, Yahweh's going to rename you Israel, which means he fights, meaning God will fight for you. If you trust in me, and depend upon me, I will fight for you, and I will bless you, and everything will go well for you. Stop fighting me. Stop trying to get the blessings on your own. Stop trying to be autonomous, and do it your way. 
If you trust in me, I will make you into Israel. I will fight all your battles. I'll deliver you all your blessings. You just have to rest in me, the Sabbath. That was the idea. So all throughout the prophets, God, whenever he wants to emphasize Israel and their disobedience and sin, he will call them Jacob. And whenever he wants to talk about what he hopes that they can be one day or what he will make them one day, he will call them Israel. So he will use those. That's intentional, that flip-flopping. Because Jacob is, you are my Jacob, my little problem child. But then he'll call him Israel because that's the parent who says, I don't care how much of a problem child you are, I know you can be something great one day. And I, want, and I have a plan for you. And I will prosper you. And I will make you into a great nation. And then, of course, that's what Jose will begin to slowly hint at. And the prophets will develop is that we will become Israel one day because he's going to change our heart. And we know that that happens through the Holy Spirit. And sanctification. So yes. So then in chapter 13, Yahweh personifies death as an instrument of judgment that he's going to use against them. Now in chapter 13, verse 14, it says this, Will I deliver them from the power of Sheol, the grave? No, I will not. Will I redeem them from death? No, I will not. O death, bring us, bring on your plagues. O Sheol, bring on your destruction. My eyes will not show any compassion. Then even when, even though he flourishes like a reed plant, a scorching east wind will come, a wind from Yahweh rising up from the desert. As a result, his spring will dry up and his well will become dry. The wind will spoil all of his delightful floods, foods, and the containers of the storehouse. Samaria will be held guilty because she rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women will be ripped open. The NIV makes it read like a promise. That's based on a misunderstanding of the word deliver. They're basically assuming that I will deliver you. Okay, but they're missing the no. That will not happen. This is a very minor thing to talk about because it's very clear that God will deliver them. It's very clear that he will punish them. So this isn't going to change our theology big time if we see this here. But basically, it does not fit the context. It does not fit the context for God to be talking about destroying them and giving them over to death and then turn around and talk about delivering them and then turn back to destroying them again. And so that doesn't fit the context here as we talk about that. Hosea ends with this. Now remember, every, most of the time, the prophets end with a promise of restoration. And Amos, you had to wait all the way to the last chapter, chapter 9, to get the promise of restoration. With Hosea, you didn't. Okay, Hosea introduced the promise of restoration very early in chapter 2. And then we got it again in chapter um, 12. But now he's going to end big time on the promise of restoration in chapter 14, verse 1. And he's going to close this whole prophecy down with that. In verse 1, it says, Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God, for your sin has been your downfall. Return to Yahweh and repent. Say to him, completely forgive our iniquity. Accept our penitential prayer. Um, Then we may offer the praise of our lips as sacrificial bulls. Now notice that, that the words of praising God is like a sacrifice in itself, that you repenting is the true sacrifice. Assyria cannot save us. We will not ride war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. For only you will show compassion to orphan Israel. Now this is a powerful statement. Notice that 
all these things are here. We will no longer trust in other foreign powers because they really can't save us. We will no longer trust in our military strength and our military budget to protect us because it can't. We will no longer say our gods of things that we've made with our own hands because they don't actually take care of us. And the most importantly, they don't show compassion to us as orphans. Because truly speaking, in the world's eyes, we're all orphans. Because if you give it enough time, or if you've hurt enough people enough times, eventually most people abandon us completely. And even our closest, most loved ones, if you wrong them deeply over and over again, they may not walk out on you completely because they love God too much and love you too much for that, but you will, they will walk out on you emotionally. And they will no longer trust you. And they will no longer connect to you in a lot of ways. And it will take a lot of work to restore that. Yet with Israel, Yahweh is always compassionate to his orphan. Because he knows that we will always wrong him. And that nothing changes with us. And he committed himself knowing that. See, we always think maybe this is the one that won't hurt us. And then we're surprised when they do. Yahweh is like, oh yeah, you're totally going to hurt me. Eventually one day you're going to crucify my son. But I'm still going to choose you. I'm still going to choose you. I'm still going to go through all this. Verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger will turn away from them. Now notice this. This is the new layer that Hosea is adding on. Amos talked about them being restored to the land one day and the land being restored to them one day. But Hosea is answering, but something's got to change because Israel is just going to do it again because nothing changes. And so God is now saying, I will heal you. You've got this horrible black darkness in your heart and I'm going to heal that somehow. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will send down his roots like a cedar of Lebanon. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will reside again in his shade. And they will plant and harvest grain in the abundance. And they will blossom like a vine. And his frame, fame will be like the vine from Lebanon. So I'm going to make Israel great again one day. So great that all the nations will look at them and be wowed by their prosperity. O Ephraim, I do not want to have anything to do with the idols anymore. I will answer him and care for him. I am like a luxuriant cypress tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? Let him discern these things. Who is discerning? Let him understand them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the godly walk in them. But in them the rebellious stumble. So let him who truly can know God walk in his ways and be like him. Because rebellious people, they trip and stumble in who he is. And we see that in the world around us, right? When you really truly get to know God and you understand the complexity of who he is, and he's not just this wrathful, harsh God who punishes people, but he's also not just this, Jesus is my friend, and he overlooks everything all the time and just wants to be buddy-buddy with you walking in the park together and never point out your sin and never confront you. And we typically go in one extreme or the other. And if you really truly know God and look at all this complexity and all that kind of stuff and you walk in his ways, you flourish. 
and you flourish not because you don't want to be punished and you obey or that you want rewards and you obey. You flourish because you know him and you love him. But then so many people in the world who don't know him, they read this Bible and they, they don't see God for who he really is because they're blinded by their own past. They're blinded by their own misconception. They're blinded by their own rebelliousness, their own desire to do what they want. And all they see is a libertarian God who lets everything go. But most often, they usually just see a harsh God that punishes. And that's what Hosea is saying. To those who truly know him, they walk in his ways and they flourish. But the rebellious, autonomous, I'm going to do it my way, when they come to God, they stumble and they fall into judgment because they don't really get who he is. They don't get who he really is. Now, the beauty of Yahweh is that he can change the rebellious into those who know him. And there's too many stories in the Bible and too many stories in our own lives and in our churches to doubt that. And if that's not true, then there's no point in the cross. There's no point. It's just a complete waste of God's time. And that's the note that Hosea leaves on. That's the note that Hosea leaves on. 